0: Reading and listening to uh, verses 1 to 11, again in chapter 6, found in the book of Romans. Let us give our attention then to the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that you would do a miracle this morning. And by a miracle that you would soften hardened hearts towards your word. That you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. We pray this in your name. Amen. Start with a question again this morning. Have you, or I should say, how have you lived in your life as though something incredible that has happened never really happened? What are ways that you have lived in your life that in such that... Things that, have, that are incredible that have happened have never happened. Let me give you an example. It's a wordy way to put that question. Should have put more work on that one. Um, some refuse, for example, to even move towards smartphone technology, to own a smartphone, right? And I get that. Um, but in, the, in that sense, right, you live as though something incredible such as the iPhone or that type of technology doesn't even exist. It never happened. Uh, there are many uh, who don 't drive cars, and probably more who will not get on an airplane, and I get that too, right? I understand that, but in that way, you are living as though the miracle of flight, for example, never really happened it 's sort of dead to you. Some have never, nor will they ever try a big Mac that one i don 't understand. But even so, to not partake in this culinary miracle is to act as though it never happened. So let me try that again. How have you lived as though something incredible that has happened never happened? How do you live as though something that incredible has happened has never happened? Israel this, does this. This has happened to Israel and happens to Israel. One of the most incredible moments throughout its history in the Old Testament Uh, having been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, over 400 years, and God, what, rescues them from that slavery, this miraculous rescue uh, through the Red Sea. Um, However, shortly after God's rescue of them, and you know this if you know the story, something strange happens, and that is they want to go back to Egypt. Immediately on the shores of the other side of the Red Sea, this new freedom that has been given to them they don't want it they want to go back and you're asking yourself why why would you return why would you act as though something incredible that has happened hasn't happened why would you want to go back why you know have you forgotten how bad it was to be under the slave conditions that were in egypt what would make someone do that Why would you live as the deliverance from being slaves of the Egyptians never happened? What slavery in Egypt, or anywhere for that matter, really shows us about ourselves is that it is one thing to say that you are free. It's one thing to legally declare that to us this morning, that you are free, that you've been rescued, that you have what a new freedom. But it is something else to live as though that is really true as though deliverance from that slavery ever occurred. In our third week in this series of living out the resurrection, a new way to be human, we come to the new freedom that we have because of the resurrection. And that is the new freedom to fight sin, the new freedom to desire something new, and the new freedom to even live out That new desire because Jesus has broken the reign sin has had on this creation by his death and his resurrection. But for many of us, for many in the church, while this incredible, amazing event has happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is so much easier in one way, in one sense, to go on living as though it never happened. Much like Israel, living as though they were never freed from the bondage of slavery from the Egyptians and wanted to go back to Egypt. We are often living as though resurrection, the new freedom that it brings, never happened. And so this morning, I want us to get a glimpse of what this new freedom begins to look like in our lives. So that we might begin to discern where we are and where we are not, living as though resurrection ever happened. Happened because if the resurrection of Jesus is true and it is friends, it is the beginning of God's new creation bursting into this world, and that has enormous implications, as we have been saying since Easter, for how we see ourselves, each other, and how we live today. So, you see them in your bulletin three things because of the resurrection, we have a new freedom, and we have a new freedom to fight sin to desire something new, and even to move into and live out that new desire. So let's take those in that order. We are free to fight sin. Paul tells us in verse 2 that we have died to sin. He says this out of asking a rhetorical question about grace and how if, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then why don't we just keep on sinning So that grace would increase. And his answer to that is, by no means. No, no, no. For one, if that is your response to grace, you've missed it and you need to go back. That's sort of Paul's response. But what's also in that, what he is saying is that sin no longer reigns or has dominion over you. You have died to it, which is to say you are then freed from it. Therefore, how can we possibly live in it? Or under its reign, a very helpful illustration that I'm sure you've you've heard to kind of get at this um, is that consider a country, if you can, who has been ruled for years by a terrible dictatorship, and they have ruled poorly. They have abused their people and the resources of that land um, much much in a way that a, an evil, bad dictator would do. But then I want you to imagine that a new government comes into that. Reign, forces the old evil dictatorship, if you will, out, and now sits uh, and reigns uh, as, as a good king or as a good ruler or as a good dictatorship. But I want, also want you to imagine that the old, the old dictatorship, right, the, the old reign, the old authority, whoever they were, they didn't just, you know, die. They, just, they, they ran off and committed themselves right, to committing uh, guerrilla warfare, as it, as it were living out in the forest, and sort of just uh, planning their attacks as they could. No longer in power, no longer reigning, but certainly offering and, and attacking where they could. When Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He is saying that sin as a king or ruler no longer reigns over you, no longer has authority over you, and though you may still experience it, How can you still live as though it does reign over you? How can you live as though you have not died to it? You are free from its reign, from its dominion. This is what Paul is saying. Paul essentially sees sin because of the resurrection of Jesus as being dethroned and left to guerrilla warfare, as it were. Therefore, we as a people who sit under a new authority and new reign, which is Christ, we actually have then what? A new freedom. And with that comes the freedom to fight sin and to push back against the effects of evil in this world. Let me be clear about what Paul is not saying to you this morning. He is not saying that because we are dead to sin, we don't sin anymore. He is not saying because we are dead to sin, we will one day get to the point in this life where we will no longer sin anymore. Let me be clear about that. He is also not saying that sin no longer uh, tempts us. Or that we even no longer desire for those things. What he is saying is that the reign of sin is over and it has ended. This is new creation or Easter language, friends. Something new has happened and has broken into this world in in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has stopped the reign of sin that ultimately ends in death and has now made a way for something completely new to occur in you. And while we may still feel and experience the attacks of sin and live as though sin still reigns at times, it has no power over us anymore. Which means with the Holy Spirit now living in us, we are free to fight it. The weapons now for the Christian, in light of the resurrection, as we have said many times, are no longer, I will try harder. They are no longer, I can do better Or they are no longer the cynic's response of what's the point? The weapons of this new creation are faith and repentance. As we fight because the battle, friends, has already been won by Jesus, the question becomes then in what ways? Are we living as though this isn't true? In what ways do we believe that we have no freedom to fight back and to push against the effects of evil in our lives and in this world? In what ways are we living as though Jesus hasn't won and it is then up to us to finish the job? Now, for sure, this is not easy at all. (laughs) It is much easier to live as though resurrection never happened, trust me, which is why Paul in verse 11, and I'm going to be running this through the entire sermon, And sort of a summary statement in verse 11 tells us that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. What he means is we must stop, actually, and think about this. We must take this new reality into account because slavery, the old regime, as it were, is still in our bones. Which means fighting sin is not going to come naturally for us at first, which, you know, makes sense, much like freed slaves. And much like freed slaves, there's a new world before us that our hearts do not know how to live and love with this new freedom that we have been given. So we must consider it and consider it often. We must constantly be telling ourselves who reigns over us now, not sin, but Christ. We must partake of and dare I say treasure the means of grace that strengthen this new reality in prayer. And the preached word, and the table, and the fellowship of believers that sin's reign is over. And these are now the new symbols and the new language of the new creation being ushered in by resurrection. We will unpack later more of what that looks like. But for now, because of the resurrection and its dethroning of sin, we no longer sit under its dominion, which means we can fight back, which means we are not helpless. This gets to the next point. We are also free to desire something new. I think if we're honest, if, if you've been a Christian for, for some time, and I'm recognizing that most of this sermon is probably geared towards Christians, but if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're probably aware of the desires in you that you, that, that you, don't, what you wish were not there that are still there you know some of us might might be thinking just on a more simpler level i want to change my eating habits or live a healthier lifestyle but my desire to not want to work out which i understand and instead eat doritos all the time which i totally understand i right, just won't go away and that's frustrating but on a, a deeper level right on a more serious level i don't we might say i don't want to lust and i i just can't seem to shake the desire to not look at pornography. Or I don't want to be ruled by greed. And I just can't shake the desire. To want more money. And what I think it might give me. And what gets the bulk of the attention in our lives. Are these deep seated habitual sins. That don't seem to go away. In the manner we would like to see them go away. Which reinforces in us this narrative. That God is not at work. You haven't changed, we tell ourselves. Your desires haven't changed and your desires will never change. And now we are just cynical about any kind of spiritual growth in our lives. Cynicism then is that chief indicator that we are truly living as though resurrection never happened. And I want to push back on that this morning. I want to push back on that in a major way. Because of the resurrection, you are free to desire something new. Your desires, friends, can, in fact, change. In fact, they cannot not change in some way by virtue of our union with Christ because he has given us a new identity. And with that new identity comes new desires. This is Paul's point in the rest of this text. As Israel left Egypt and complained and wanted to return, God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One of those reasons was to show Israel they could trust God. And with that trust, they would begin to desire new things based on their new identity as his people. Their identity For generations was wrapped up as slaves and it would take years to get Egypt, as it were, out of them. But now they belong to this God. Yahweh was his name. A new reign, a new authority. And while their desires for the old way, the old self, wouldn't change overnight. God was faithfully in the business of leading them out of the slavery and unto himself where he would show them a new way to live. A new way to understand who they were. A new way to worship. A new way to live and be human with the giving of his law. And this would ultimately begin the process of reshaping their desires. Now fast forward to Jesus. Which is, and in his resurrection, the fullness of this exodus And it has come to us in him, which is which in our baptism, as Paul brings up now, it buries or plants us with him, giving us a new identity. And with that new identity, much like Israel, comes new desires. Paul goes right in there, right into this in verses three to four. When this happened for Paul was at your baptism, he says. At your baptism, by the washing of water, which symbolizes the Holy Spirit's work in you, you became a covenant member of God's people. And certainly, looking forward, right, to the day when you grew into your new identity as God's people, marked by a profession of faith, among other things, you were what? Grafted in. You, you had union with Jesus by that faith. That's when it happened. How this happens for Paul, though, was by what baptism truly signifies. And that is being buried, as verse 4 says, or planted, what that word really means, with next to Christ to share in his death and resurrection. In other words, and this is so complicated, I know, it is representative. That's the point. It's representative. That what is true for Jesus is now true for you, for those of you who are united with him. His death was your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. You now belong to him. And this is why all of a sudden Paul is entering into this much more difficult and confusing conversation about identity and about status. Because our union with Christ, because of our union with Christ by faith alone. I get it. This is, he just kind of goes there. He doesn't worry about, doesn't ask for permission to go to that top shelf. But that's what he's getting at. But the message is the same for us. By faith, we are planted in Christ as well so that what happens to him happens to us as his people. And that's the image of baptism here in verses 3 and 4. By faith, we are united to him so that what is true for Christ is true for us. This is new identity, new creation language. And with that new identity, friends, comes new desire. So now, not only does sin no longer reign or have authority over us, we have freedom to now fight back, but we we have been reclaimed. And we possess a new identity in Christ because of the resurrection that means we are free to desire something new. Think of a child who was adopted out of poverty in war-torn lands and into a family, right, where opportunities, education, and unconditional love, just to name a few, were now available. Those were now the ingredients, the context, the environment in which that child was living. Under that new identity, by belonging to that new family, how could that child not be free to desire something new? And the same is true for us. Because of our union with Christ, you've been adopted and baptism marks that in us. And this is important, not because sin has changed necessarily, though it is weakened, but because like that adopted child, you have changed. Something new is happening in you. You have a new heart. That that by the Holy Spirit is changing our desires, Because that's what it means to be a part of God's people now. But it's not just that we we are free to have those new desires. With this new identity, as it were, we are free to live out those new desires. And this gets to the last point. In his book, After You Believe, Tom Wright gives an illustration that I think helps us understand just what is happening because of the re- resurrection by God's grace and this new freedom that we now have and how it changes our desires and how it helps us and offers the ability for us to, to pursue and live out those new desires. He speaks of, and by the way, this is not saying anything about our, our choir. He speaks of a choir director that he knows who took on the task of running a small village uh, small village church's choir that was sort of known, known or notorious for just being terrible. Uh, they, they just they couldn't carry a note, um, and, and but they would still get up and they would still sing because they liked to sing. And and when the when the audience would applaud, <clears throat> which never happens here, they would applaud out of sympathy. Right? Just okay, let's move on. They just never seemed to get any better, no matter how much they practiced, no matter what they did. But all that changed when Tom's friend took over the choir, he says. He was able to teach them and to show them how to sing better, he says. What harmonies were supposed to sound like, even how to read music for some. And it completely transformed the choir. Same people, right? New sound. But what was just as interesting is that with this transformation came members of the choir, what? Finding new desires in them, wanting to go further, wanting to read the music better, right? Wanting to sense and understand the harmonies in deeper ways, to feel the shape of the melody, as he says, and to get the breathing and the voice production right. Friends, this is what is happening to us in Christ because of the resurrection, Grace, as Paul has been saying, is God coming to us as we are in our is God coming to us as we are in our broken and messy ways, much like this choir director, coming to this terrible choir. But grace is not content to leave us where we are, is it? In our fallen and messy, out of tune states. Grace motivates it empowers, not just by coming into our lives, by changing our hearts so that we begin to what desire new things and then begin to long to act on those new desires. It is to say that once you get a taste for the new harmonies in the choir, as it were, you want more and more and more of them. This is what it's like when the grace of Jesus comes into our lives. Paul goes there, though we did not read it this morning in verses 12 to 14 of this chapter, but read it now with this in mind. He says, "Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though as those who have been brought to death from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Look, when you listen to professional athletes, they talk all the time about wanting to be on a winning team. Why? Well, it's not just because they themselves want to win, but being around those who want to win. Both the players and the coach spurn you on to new and to better things. Paul says in Christ, you are on the winning team. And with that comes not just new desires, but this desire to want to live out those desires, to spurn you forward. Jesus has come and he is showing us and teaching us how to truly sing. Not in some uber spiritual kind of way, but in a, oh, this is what I was created for kind of way. And when you get a taste of that, you want more of it. That's what this is about. And you are free then to live out that new kingdom desire as reclaimed and repurposed people. To ignore this possibility. This reality for the church is to be a church that lives as though resurrection never happened. But friends, you've heard the new song. The gospel. You've heard the music. You've caught it. Some, it's sometimes faint melody. You've been stopped by its beautiful harmonies. You know it's there. You know it's true. But perhaps maybe we've just forgotten what it sounds like. Maybe the volume of resurrection needs to be turned up in one sense, and the other volumes that create fear and cynicism in our lives need to be turned down. And be reminded that they no longer reign over you, they no longer rule and have authority. because of the resurrection, you have a new freedom, friends, to fight sin, to desire something new, and to even live out those desires. Might we do the hard thing and stop to consider, as Paul tells us in verse 11, to think about this, to reckon with it, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus as we move into each day. One piece of application as to what this might begin to look like because it looks like a lot of things and I would love to continue the conversation about what this looks like but time will not let me do so but to give this one thing to have this new freedom to fight sin to desire something new to even live out that new desire must mean a move towards holiness in this life and that word holiness I get it Gets a bad rap, both in the church and outside of the church. But why? Stay with me for a second. Why? Why would the resurrection mean a move towards holiness for us? It's because holiness is the new creation. And that's the world you, friends, have been baptized into in Christ. You see that. It's the world you belong. It's the world you are going to. See, we are not just to wait for holiness to happen fully in this life to come, but we are to move out of obedience to our new master, who is Jesus Christ, towards the life or world we are brought into by being united to him in his baptism. The world where we are fed and nourished at his table. The world that is to come, but the world that has started today today. Because of his resurrection. The Bible describes this world as being marked by holiness, which might look differently than you think. And so, just to give you one thing to think about, a move towards holiness today means that sin begins and continues to grieve you and repulse you. That is much different than the idea that you are to stop sinning altogether. The Bible does not carry that expectation for us now. Rather, we are to see a growing disdain for our sin. We are to no longer tolerate our sin or to make progress with it. In this way, the new world of the resurrection life is not marked by a moral conformity. But what? Poverty of spirit. Are you finding yourself more and more grieved over your sin? How has it affected you or how it has affected you and others? Are you repulsed by it? Not in a way that begets more shame and guilt, friends, but in a way that stands at odds with your new identity. Your, your new identity in Christ in a way that stands at odds with who is truly in power now who truly reigns and has authority in this life and the one to come, if so, then you are living as the resurrection has occurred. Which is why faith and repentance, again, are the new weapons or tools of this age. A move towards holiness should always accompany an increase in your grievance towards sin, if resurrection is true, to the point where you might cry out, as Paul does in this next chapter, chapter 7, where he says, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You can hear him saying it. Therefore, holiness also means, friends, that there is uh, or should be progress in the what we call mortification of sin in this life. Which is our putting sin to death in certain ways. Not as a badge of righteousness or as a way to prove our love for God, but as a consequence of the Spirit's work in our lives because of our union with Christ. We should be seeing sins and the desires to sin being put to death in our lives. Now, disclaimer. That looks different for everybody. Let me be very clear about that. And it requires shepherding care of the church, and it requires counseling, and it requires close friendships. It requires a team, right It requires a family it requires the church. But if resurrection is true, then it truly means god 's new creation has started, which means you are truly dead to sin. You are free of its reign. And fruit of its death in your life should begin to begin popping up in some way over some period of time. Because that is the Spirit's work in you. It's the promise of the Spirit's work in you. And if you're like me, I don't see it often, but i got to ask others. Sometimes they see it better than I do. And I would encourage you to think about it in that way. But you are free of its reign and the fruit of its death in your life, uh, the fruit of, 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 of this mortification should be popping up in some way over some period of time. I'm comfortable telling you this morning that there are sins that you will see put to death in this lifetime, and there are sins that you will not see put to death in this lifetime. That is why we trust in grace which is where Paul begins, and not in our own efforts or our abilities. But he call, but, a, but a call to holiness is not, and it never will be a call to prove your worth to God, but a call to live and to act in accord with the new world you have been baptized into in Christ, a new world that is upon us because of the resurrection. And because resurrection is true, new freedoms for those in Christ who has come to take a broken, messy, out of tune people and to make them sing and perhaps sing again would be a better way to put it i'll close with this i came across this article that i thought was pretty 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 unique pretty awesome that i just want to share with you and with a relationship to where where, what we've talked about this morning you've probably heard about this um there's a guy a, a jazz pianist named Keith Jarrett, uh, in the seventies. And, uh, he was hired to play in Germany at the first ever jazz performance, uh, given at the Cologne opera house there in Germany. And this guy was, was, was excellent at the piano, uh, excellent jazz musician. He performed so well that night that they actually took the recording of that performance, made an album of it and sold it. And it only sold 3.5 million copies. Um, it would go on uh, to become one of the best albums, best jazz pianist albums out there. And someone would regard it as the best jazz album out there uh, in piano. But what makes this story so great, and this is what caught my, my ear to it, is that the piano that Jarrett played on that night at that hall was broken. And not just like, you know, one of the legs was sort of loose or falling off. Like, keys didn't work, <laughs> Most of the keys were out of tune. The pedals stuck when he hit them. And, and there was a moment there of sort of transparency where Jarrett was ready just to sort of leave. He was so frustrated with this, and which I can appreciate. He had, he's dealing with some back problems at the time. Just didn't want to deal with it. I get that. But he goes on to play this thing anyways. And the article concludes, In short, Jarrett made good music from a bad instrument. Friends, that's the gospel. Jesus is in the business of making great music from bad, broken, and seemingly impossible instruments, as it were, that are you and that are me. That is grace. That is the grace that is abounding in Jesus Christ for us. And his resurrection The most incredible thing to happen in this world is the first note of a long line of notes. Some that have come and some that will come for sure. And that will culminate in a glorious final note of our actual bodies being raised from the dead. Now may we, the church, always live as though the most incredible thing that ever happened has actually happened. And may that reality bring new freedoms into our lives as a testimony to its truth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in the business of taking broken, messy things and turning them into beautiful, great things. And your resurrection is the first note of the promise of that. It has come. It is here. We are in the midst of it, though we don't realize it fully. But would we live as though it happened? Would we, uh, through your Spirit, uh, see that there, there, there is evil out there to fight, both in us and in this world? That there are new desires to be enjoyed, to li- be lived out, because it is a testimony to the new creation that has already begun through your resurrection because we are united to you. Would you do this in us for your glory, we pray. Amen.